just so you're aware, I realize I, I can be a distraction to myself and to you. Um, it has to do with my family. So that's um, part of my difficulty. On the bright side, I got to tell you um, about something that happened, I don't know, a few weeks ago. My, my, my youngest son, Isaac, um, that I can still talk about because he doesn't come in here, right? He's out there somewhere. Um, he went to sports camp, and uh, he actually went to sports camp two weeks in a row. It's his first, first time. And, uh, and he had an altercation while at sports camp. Um, and one thing you have to know about my youngest son is that he is, um, one, he's outspoken. And two, he has a real problem with people using bad words, uh, cursing, in particular, the name of Jesus Christ. And it's not because we beat it into him. Um, we, we just, you know, just like most parents do, just gently say, you know, the name of Jesus Christ is, is the name of our King and Savior and Lord and pretty much the King of Kings. So we want to say it with a sense of reverence and not in an irreligious kind of cursing, flippant sense. And, well, he took that to heart somewhere along the way. So when he hears, hears somebody take um, the name of Jesus in a way that is irreligious or the way that is profane, he has a real hard time with it. So there's this kid at sports camp who says, Jesus Christ! And my son, the outspoken one, says, uh, you know, you shouldn't say that. It's, it's wrong to say Jesus Christ that way. Well, you know what happens when kids say something like that? Well, then that kid just wants to just like, my son. So sure enough, he just keeps saying it over and over and over again until finally my youngest is just like fed up. He's done with someone saying the name of Jesus in an irreligious way. So finally he looks at this kid and he says, listen. He's nine years old. If you don't stop saying that, you're going to go to hell. That's what he says. He actually said, you're going to go to hell. At this, the, the kid, hearing that he's going to hell, now melts down. So there's this altercation. This kid's upset because he feels like he's going to hell, and my son's upset because he to took Jesus' name in vain, right? And the, the leader of the sports camp has to mediate now between these two. And, and so by the time my wife gets there to pick him up, the leader says, listen, something happened. I got to tell you about it. And, and I've never seen it before. Is that, you know, one kid was using the name Jesus and your son said, stop it. And he didn't stop it. So your son said to the other kid, he's going to hell. And I was thinking, you know, yeah, you're probably right. Kids don't say that to each other, do they? They say a lot of other things, but rarely will you hear on the playground, hey, if you keep doing that, you're going to hell. You know, okay, so, on the one hand, you have to say that he lacked tact, sensitivity, gentleness, and compassion, to be sure, right? Just don't say that. Now, my guess is he said it out of frustration, too, and you're not supposed to say things like that out of frustration, but compassion. So, granted, he lacked those things, but there, I have to tell you, there's this piece of me as a father that's like, you know, way to verbalize what you feel, and have the courage and the bravery to do it, right? I just, that, that, that's part of how I felt. It's like, way to just kind of stand up for yourself in a time when nobody's willing to do that. I, I appreciated that about my son. But, you know, trying to teach him the balance between verbalizing your convictions versus, um, you know, the compassion you're supposed to have for people. That's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting parenting <laughs> dilemma. But, you know, he's, he's just... Is he, my son, the youngest son, a true believer? I don't know yet. You know, you don't know until the fruit starts to come into the life. But at a very young age, at least at this point, he professes to know the truth. 
And he's, he's trying to navigate life believing what he believes with people who don't agree with him and with people who don't say things that he likes or don't even like his beliefs. And you know what struck me? That's what we're trying to do, right? Uh, we, as followers of Jesus, are trying to navigate in a time of tremendous change and upheaval. You feel like almost these moral tectonic plates are just shifting in our world. And we're trying to figure out how to navigate this change. Precarious. It feels unprecedented, at least it does to me. Unknowns about the future. Where is this all headed? How do we do that? And it, to me, to navigate this appropriately means we have to avoid two dangerous extremes. I think you know what I'm talking about. And that's not all we're talking about. We're talking about all of other, the whole fabric of the thing that's, that's happening in our world and our culture. Two extremes. One extreme, of course, is compassion without conviction. And the other is conviction without compassion. People who are compassionate without conviction, by conviction, it's like, in particular, conviction about what God has stated in, in his word in regards to what is right and what is wrong. That is moral absolute truth. Conviction. Compassion without conviction is spineless. Not only spineless, but it's, it's massively dangerous. You can't get away from it. And I'm just going to be really pointed here because I feel like the Lord wants me to be. You read Galatians 5 where it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. What a man sows, he also reaps. If you sow sin, you reap destruction. Pretty clear. Got to have conviction. Ephesians 5. Same thing. Talking about those who walk in darkness end up under the wrath of God. That's pretty clear that you have to have strong conviction about truth. Most, if not all, the book of Revelation is about the importance of maintaining fidelity to Christ and his word. So that by, by the time you get to the end of the book, and let's see if I can quote this from memory, Revelation 21, verse 8, says, after all this good stuff, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, cowardly, those who cave under pressure, those who have the courage to stand, those who are, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their portion is in the lake of, that burns with fire and sulfur. It's like, whatever the lake that burns with fire and sulfur is, it's obviously extremely dangerous, meaning conviction matters. Now, if you're sitting here in the room going, wow, he's being extremely culturally insensitive. It's like, listen, I just quoted scripture. <laughs> all right? That's, how, that's the danger side of having Compassion that says, hey, you know, it really doesn't matter the difference between right and wrong. It's all about compassion and love. Well, that's dangerous. And I hope all of us realize that's dangerous biblically, which is why you have to hold on to this side. On the, on the flip side, to have conviction without compassion, you know, where there's this kind of elevated sense of bravado where, you know, we have a corner on truth that creates this kind of us-them mentality that, 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 that it communicates with a spirit of both condemnation and judgment. 
No compassion, no sympathy. There's, that's dangerous too. It's called hypocrisy. It's called self-righteousness, which is, which is equally damning. So how do we maintain this conviction with compassion? To me, that's that, that, that how we do that, that's, that's, that's how we navigate these times. How does that relate to the prophet? Well, he is an example of somebody who has a lot of conviction, but no compassion. Almost a negative example. Conviction, but no compassion. If you've followed us, followed us through the first three chapters, three and a half chapters of, of, of Jonah, you've seen a prophet who's who does not want the Lord to give mercy to a particular group of people, the Ninevite people, people that he has considered and judged to be evil. And by all accounts of the scripture, they were. They were evil. They did evil things. They did wicked things. And he wanted wrath, not mercy. He wanted judgment, not forgiveness. And through the whole book, there's this battle of wills between these two, a prophet and Yahweh. And the the prophet wants wrath, and Yahweh's will is mercy. And at the end of the day, God's will of mercy prevails, both in the life of the prophet and in the life of the Ninevites. Mercy wins the day. But, and if I could do just do a quick, like, um, aside. If Jonah is a book that's all about mercy... And it seems like God is going soft on justice or judgment or wrath. It's important to point out the counterbalance in terms of the prophetic word. And that is, two books later, there's this little tiny book called the book of Nahum. A prophet who prophesied roughly a century after Jonah. Roughly after the book of mercy. Where God speaks judgment. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, of Eloish. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. And that book is a strong, dark word of wrath against the Ninevites. And in 612 B.C., the Ninevite town was destroyed in fulfillment of this prophetic word of judgment. I say that simply to point out that divine judgment is inevitable and it is certain. It is inevitable and it is certain. We must not question or doubt the fact that God will bring all things to justice. He did it in Nineveh's time. He will inevitably and certainly bring judgment upon our country and upon our world, period. So we must not think for a second that God goes soft on sin or on evil because he does not. But in the time of Jonah was a time of mercy, a time where God grants a, a season of repentance, and that's what it's about. And Jonah has a really, really hard time with the fact that God was merciful to evil people. And that's what we saw last week. We saw the prophet's response to God relenting or changing his mind, as it were, as to what he was originally intending to do. He was going to 
going to overturn or overthrow the city because of its evil. Instead, in light of their repentance, God relents and shows mercy. And what did we find? The prophet is outraged. He was exceedingly displeased with God's mercy towards Israel's enemies. And he utters his complaint. He says, this is what I, what I told you would happen long before this. And, and sure enough, you, you showed mercy. And, um, and we pick up the story with him walking away in the middle of a conversation with the Lord. The Lord asks him the question, and it's almost as if he departs again um, from the Lord. And this is uh, where we pick up the story. Verse 5 of chapter 4, it says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade um, till he should see what would become of the city. Rather intriguing that, 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 that uh, Jonah actually sets up a little hut for himself to see what would happen to the city. And, and it, really, we should pause and ask a critical question here that I think makes a difference in how you interpret this. If he already knew that the people of Nineveh received mercy, that God wasn't going to pour out his wrath, well, why is he then sitting on a hill under a hut waiting to see what would happen? You, you see the problem here? If he already knew they were granted mercy, then why is he looking as if something different is going to happen? Why is he, if you will, carving out a front row seat to see if maybe God would blast him to hell? And I, I think one of the best explanations for it, and therefore kind of moves us in a direction in terms of interpretation, is maybe he thought that in light of his protest, in light of his complaint, his prayer of verses 2 and 3, that maybe the Lord would change his mind again and withdraw mercy. That makes sense of the verses before, and it makes sense of the object lesson after. It shouldn't surprise us that one would maybe expect the Lord to change his mind after a, a prayer of protest. I mean, Moses did the same thing in Exodus chapter 32. God said, I am going to blot out all of the people of Israel. Moses says, wait a second, don't do that. Um, remember the promises you made? It says the Lord changed his mind because Moses prayed. And maybe, just maybe, Jonah's thinking, well, maybe the Lord will do the same in my case. I don't want mercy, and so maybe the Lord will listen. So he sets up a little booth, and he's waiting with his chair. What's going to happen? Will God withdraw mercy in response to my plea or not? You know how um, sometimes God brings experiences into our lives to, to bring us awake or help us realize something we were blind to, maybe an arrogance or a prejudice or something that we weren't um, formally aware of and, and the experience brings it to light? Well, the Lord's going to take Jonah through an experience that is supposed to or intended to show him his double standard and his hypocrisy. Instead of just telling him he's a hypocrite, he takes him through a bit of an object lesson as he's waiting there on the east edge of the city for God to change his mind and bring wrath, not mercy. The first part of this object lesson is that the Lord sends a little gift of mercy, a little comfort. It says, Now the Lord, now Yahweh God, appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. 
whatever this hut was, apparently it wasn't enough to keep the heat off of them. They didn't have sunscreen in those days. So the Lord, in a simple act of mercy, causes this fast-growing plant to grow up in, in, in a short period of time. And it shields him from the wrath of the sun. It shields him in a way that he could not shield himself by building his hut. And notice his response. It says, Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Huge irony here. He was exceedingly displeased in chapter 4, verse 1, when God showed a great mercy on Nineveh. And here he's exceedingly glad for the simple comfort of mercy of a simple plant. You see, to one mercy, a great mercy, he's completely displeased and upset and angry. And to a simple mercy given to him personally, well, now he is exceedingly glad. Something is massively wrong with his heart. He's upset at one mercy, glad at another. Well, that is, a, if you will, God giving him a, a mercy. A simple gift of a shade tree as you watch to wait and see if I will withdraw mercy. Well, what happens next? God withdraws that mercy. Verse 7, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jodah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. <laughs> and you see what's happening. God like appoints a worm to destroy the plant that was a, a simple mercy and then brings down a beating, scorching wind upon his head and he's, he's just faint. A mercy given, a mercy taken away. He has given him a taste of mercy and a taste of Judgment following mercy. What he's doing is he's saying to, 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 to the prophet through personal experience, it's like, listen, what you really want and you're waiting on the edge of the city for is for me to draw, withdraw a given mercy. Let's see how you like it. I'll give you a little mercy and then I'll take away that little mercy and see how you feel. Well, he's massively upset. He's angry. Now he's upset at the Lord. How can you do that? Like, here's a mercy. Not. Forgiven? No, not really. That's precisely what he's done. He has withdrawn a mercy just to show him what it feels like. And his own hypocrisy. You want me to do to them what you don't want done to you. See it? You don't want me to do to them what you want me to do for you. It's just a complete contradiction. You're a hypocrite. There's a double standard. You want mercy. You don't want them to have mercy. You want me to withdraw mercy from them, but you don't want me to withdraw it from you. There's the, if you will, the little object lesson to bring about um, an awareness. At this point, it doesn't seem like he's willing to give in to this object lesson. Well, this object lesson is then clarified in the final question and final, if you will, argument of the Lord. The Lord gets the last word in this book. It says, And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I, and should not I pity Nineveh, the great city in which there is more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right from their left, 
and also much cattle. Wait a second. You pity the plant, right? You didn't labor. You didn't make it grow. You, you, you had no part in it. You didn't fertilize it. You didn't spritz it with water. You did nothing to make it grow. No ownership, no sovereignty. There was no relationship or involvement between you and the plant. It just grew up. And then it died in the night. A simple act of judgment. At least a sign or symbol of judgment. And you get all upset. As if you had a right to be compassionate or a right to be upset. Pity the plant. At the end of the day, by the way, he's not pitying the plant. He's pitying the fact that he doesn't have the shade that it provides. It's all about him. But there's no ownership. There's no involvement in his relationship to the plant, but the opposite is, is, is infinitely true in verse 11. Should I not pity Nineveh and the great city filled with people who were created in my image, fallen, yes, but they were created as sons and daughters to me, in rebellion, yes, living in evil, yes, but they are works of my hands. I, I, I fashioned their hearts. I fashioned them. They are my labor. They are my work of my hands. I own them. They're my people. And not just my people. You notice he extends it even to the animal life. And cattle. I mean, the, the, the animals matter to me. They're mine too. You have no involvement in the plant. And you're, you're, you're filled with self-pity. I have every reason to be filled with compassion because these are mine. The way a father might feel about a rebellious son. These are mine. And I love them. And you know what? They don't even know their right hand from their left. Which means they can't tell the difference between right and wrong. They're entirely lost. They're groping about, trying to find some meaning for identity or some, some reason to hope, some, some meaning to their life, and they can't find it. Two completely divergent, different hearts. In terms of both compassion and value. This final argument of the Lord was an argument for the people of Israel and for the church. That we are highly liable to the infection of believing that we deserve mercy but others deserve judgment. It's interesting, when Jesus came onto the scene, that's exactly what he found. People would say, how can you spend time with tax collectors and sinners? And you know that, not to be cliche, but that's what's written. And he said, listen, you know, there was a guy who had 100 sheep, and one got lost, and, and, and the shepherd went after it and came back, and, and there was a party because the lost, sinful, evil sheep came home. And there was a woman who lost a coin, and and she scoured her house looking for that one simple coin. And when she found that one little coin, she rejoiced in the way that my father rejoices over one evil sinner who repents. In the same way that the prodigal son returns home to a father who has been waiting and wanting him to return. And a party thrown for the one evil person who comes back to. That's the heart of God. A heart that the people of Israel really didn't get. You know, I, I, I kind of wonder if, I, I believe Jonah was, was a historical figure. But I kind of wonder if also the whole writing wasn't written with the idea of him personifying Israel. This is how my people will act. And a message to the church in our time. 
How do we feel about God extending mercy to our enemies? How do, how do, how do we see them? Is our heart aligned with his, or is our heart completely divergent from his? Is this, there's, there's, there's rich application of this for us. Humbling, maybe even convicting application for us. I see compassions, divergent compassions, and divergent values. And since the book ends in a question which we're supposed to answer, let me put these application points in two questions. Do I want God's mercy for me only or for my enemies also? Do I want God's mercy for me only or for my enemies also? You know, it it really is, it it feels amazing to come in and be reminded, hey, you're free and you're forgiven to take communion together and remember that he paid the price fully and completely for me and therefore um, we are um, redeemed, loved, accepted fully and completely. That, That feels good. And it's really easy for us to then leave that moment where we're reveling in the mercy of God and Maybe not verbally, although sometimes verbally, curse an overly controlling mother-in-law or uh, an oppressive and dishonest boss or someone who doesn't have the same sexual orientation as you do or someone who doesn't pull his weight in society and lives in a tent under a tree. Do we want compassion for ourselves? Or do we want compassion not only for ourselves, but also for those who can't tell their right hand from their left? Jesus was pretty strong when he said that those who forgive shall be forgiven. And those who are merciful shall receive mercy. That puts a, a high price on the giving of mercy and forgiveness. Now, it's not as if me giving mercy is going to earn God's mercy. I think, actually, the, re- the true reception of mercy produces a merciful heart, which will then, on the last day, receive mercy. That a forgiving heart is developed because you know you've been forgiven of actual sin and guilt, and that produces a forgiving heart, which then on the last day will hear the final declaration, your, your name is in the Lamb's book of life and you're forgiven fully, completely, the final word of justification. That is, those who truly know their fallenness, their brokenness, as we sang, and then know what it's like to experience mercy and forgiveness are and will become by nature forgiving and merciful people. Some of the most merciful people I've ever met in my life have been screw-ups in their life. You ever notice that? They're not judgmental. They don't look down upon you. Why? Because they've been there and they know what it's like to receive mercy. Do we want God's mercy for us only or also for our enemies? Keeping in mind also just... I like how the Lord says they don't know the right hand from their left. That's a pretty accurate description of the world in which we live. You can't expect the world to act like Christians because they're not. They're morally blind. Blind people don't don't walk very well unless they have a cane, somebody to guide them. Divergent compassions. Do I want God's mercy for me only or do I want it also for those who are against me? Do I pray for my enemy, 
Do I bless those who curse me? Um, do I serve those who don't like my faith? And then divergent values, and this is the last one. It's like, do I value my, my advantage only or the advantage also of others and I included creation since the last word in the book is cattle, creation that God cares for. It's interesting that the, the, the plant that, that Jonah was so upset over um, that it was really about him and not the plant. Like, I, I don't think he was really upset about the plant dying because he was a member of Greenpeace or the Sierra Club or a horticulturalist or a botanist. It's, 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 that, that wasn't the issue. It's because that plant that he had no part in making was part of his comfort. And God took it away, and now he experienced the wrath of the sun, and now he's upset. It was about his own personal and private advantage, not the advantage of others. And that's Yahweh, right? That's like these souls I do care for. I care for people created in my image. And I even I care for the animals that reside in this city. This is the heart of God for, for others. Do we have that same kind of heart? Is it just about my own private advantage? And if it is, then we'll, we will always lack compassion for other people. I was reminded of that this, this week. Actually, it was two days ago. I ordered a little package from Amazon, you know, and it, it was a package for me. Not for anybody else. It wasn't a gift. I don't even know if it's something I can share. But I ordered it. And I got this little email from FedEx saying, hey, your package arrived on July 8th. It was delivered at your porch. Well, it's July 10th. I walk out. There's nothing on my porch. My first thought is someone ripped me off, texting my neighbors, hey, did you take my packages off my porch? Nope, didn't do it. Meanwhile, now, it's a loss of my own personal private advantage, my little gift to myself. Meanwhile, my daughter says, I have this massive headache. I didn't really realize it till later, and what I'm about to say is going to incriminate me as a, as a father. That's okay. I'm broken. My daughter has this massive headache. She can hardly stay awake. Meanwhile, I am so consumed by my loss of my own personal advantage, my little box, I can't even see the need of my daughter. So consumed by the loss of a plant that provided shade, he can't see what God sees. Souls of people. How many of us are so, maybe it's not you, maybe you don't care about your grass, are so upset about the grass that's dying in your front yard because of the drought, but you really don't care about the neighbors who are eternal beings who are dying all around you. Such a divergence easily that can define who we are. And this is a, a message to the church. Do not be people of conviction without compassion. Otherwise, you're so far away from the Lord's heart. Rather, be people of humble conviction and deep compassion. That's, brothers and sisters, how we're supposed to navigate um, these times, I believe. And you know what takes us there? You know what's able to keep us in that, that place of having both of those things? It's the gospel, right? I mean, if you want to talk about conviction and rights and wrongs, you know where you go? go you, you go to the cross, right? And you're like, this is how much God hates evil. Wrongdoing. I mean, if it doesn't really matter, right or wrong, well, then why did Jesus have to die? 
I mean, let's just go to the man who's screaming on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And realize how much God hates him. Is God convicted about moral sin? Absolutely. It reminds us just how he feels about it. You, you, you can't make light of something that put a man, a perfect man on a cross to take upon himself the wrath. You just can't make light of it when you really have an honest look at the crucifixion of Jesus. you got to go, man, God's pretty dang convinced about justice, isn't he? Oh, yeah, he sure is. That's conviction. That's what happens. That's the end. And actually, it's that conviction that should actually create some compassion. It's like, at the end of the day, this is what happens when the hammer comes down. And why I have to tell you, listen, the Lord is... Gracious and loving and merciful if you're willing to bow before him in repentance and say, Lord, I'm sorry. Right? But it also creates humility because all of us have to be honest and say, you know what? My evil put him there. Your evil put him there. Mine put him there. My brokenness put him there. It's really hard to chuck stones at other people when you realize this is God's conviction of justice. And at the same time, it's my sin that put him there. Who am I then to point at anybody else and say, you're beneath where I am as an entitled son or daughter of God. It's just, it humbles you, humble conviction at the cross. But also, you know, just to know that we, in that same time, are loved. Not because of any good we did and not because of the failures we, 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 we did. It's, it, we were loved because of Jesus alone. That secures, that says, you're mine forever, you're accepted and it's when we realize that kind of love, we begin to start to love and show compassion to others. We love, we show compassion, because we were first shown compassion by Christ. And that's the gospel. Humble conviction, deep, enduring compassion come from the same place. Church, Parkway, my family, let us, uh, let us not be people of conviction without compassion or compassion without conviction. That's a great, perfect timing. I'm going to be done, whatever that alarm is. Maybe we could just, it seems a fitting close to this, to just pray for the church of Fairfield. Um, it may be that a particular church is on your mind, or a particular person or pastor, whatever. And um, I don't know what that is. That's somebody's, oh well. God will hear our prayers anyway. Um, will you just pray that God would, by his grace, Give us the wisdom and the strength and the grace to have those two things, humble conviction and yet deep, enduring compassion. Let's just pray for the church of Fairfield, and then we'll close with a final song.